Hello, everyone, and welcome to the podcast Byzantium and Friends. I'm Anthony, your host. I want to begin today by talking about episodes other than this one. Specifically, I am aware of the fact that there are many video games that people play in probably larger numbers than read specialized scholarship on Byzantium that feature Byzantium. And many of you write to me and you tell me about these. And I'm definitely interested. I'm not a gamer, uh, but... uh, it's an aspect of the representation of Byzantium that is very important. I think it's uh, it's not very well understood, and yet it's responsible for bringing a lot of students to our classrooms, I think, or so they say. Uh, and so I, I am looking for someone who can speak about uh, that issue. Um, so, you know, hold tight. Uh, or maybe not. I don't know. It might take a while because, you know, experts on Byzantium and video game uh, players are maybe that group doesn't overlap that much, but I'm trying. Uh, another matter, um, I I also do have quite a few uh, questions left over from the um, listener um, questions that I asked you to send me, and I've structured those in into thematically related episodes, and we're going to be recording those still. Um, I, I know it's been a while; this is taking longer than I expected, uh, but that's what happens when when you have a release date uh, every two weeks. Uh, So it'll be a while, but I will get around to most of your questions, so have no fear about that. And also, just looking ahead, a couple months ahead, uh, hopefully less, um, I'm planning a special episode for you uh, with horror stories uh, from Byzantium, and uh, uh, that should be fun. Um, I'm I'm liking already the way it's shaping up. Uh, Anyway, so that's just some notes about future episodes uh, and uh, some ideas that I have. I just wanted to respond to those of you who are writing writing to me, um, especially about the video games. Uh, I'll look into it. So our episode today, uh, it combines a number of different areas and interests. And what holds them together is my worry about how we're studying Byzantine literature and how we're talking about it. And I'm hoping to develop a number of episodes about this topic as well. And my worry is the following, that after a very long period during which Byzantine literature was disparaged, um, even by experts in it, uh, it was almost a kind of requirement <laughs> that if you're an expert in Byzantine literature, you have to constantly put it down and and talk about how the prose is flat and the poetry is like prose. And and it's just like, oh, it's unreal. Oh, you know, poor me. I have to read this stuff. And, you know, here's some jokes about how bad it is and all that. That lasted for well into the 20th century, into the late 20th century. Um, and we've stopped doing that now, fortunately. But the field hasn't yet developed um, a mechanism or vehicle or a set of ideas or even promotional tactics by which to explain to the world at large why Byzantine literature is worth reading, and even less so, why it's fun to read. And I suspect that part of the reason is that a lot of us experts also don't (laughs) find it fun to read or really enjoy it or can even really articulate why we think it's important above and beyond the historical data that it provides to us as historians. Uh, now, I should say that for myself, I really enjoy reading Byzantine literature um, much more than I enjoy reading 
modern literature, uh, especially the modern novel. Uh, but uh, that's a maybe a topic for a different time. The question of Byzantine literature is a very complex one. Uh, it involves a number of different areas of research, and I wanted this episode to touch on as many of them as possible. Specifically, I mean, we have on the one hand the manuscripts in which Byzantine texts are preserved, and what we're doing with those manuscripts, especially now that a lot of them have been digitized and made available online. There are also the digital versions of Byzantine texts, uh, especially the TLG, uh, the Thesaurus Linguae Graecae, which is an online database of digitized Byzantine texts, which has a number of very uh, useful tools for doing all kinds of fascinating things. And then there's just the experience of just sitting down and reading a text and waiting for it to deliver its surprises. I find Byzantine texts are often very surprising. I I find them you often, I mean, it's a master stylist. They're very well crafted. Uh, they make you think. They force you to think about what's going on and what is being hinted at um, above and beyond what's explicitly said. Uh, this is something that Byzantines really, really enjoyed doing themselves and to each other and to us at uh, over this great distance of time. So to talk with me about all of these topics, we touch on all of these a little bit, um, is my guest today, Dave Jenkins, who is a librarian at Princeton University, and his areas are uh, classics, uh, linguistics, and Hellenic studies. I, I've known him for quite a while, and he's also someone like me who really enjoys reading Byzantine texts. And I thought it would be fun to uh, talk with him generally about how we came to reading Byzantine literature and what we do with online resources. And he's a pioneer in that regard. And what is it that we enjoy uh, when we read these texts? Um, and he's an ideal person for this because um, he is he's a he's a reader <laughs> of Byzantine texts. He is a philosopher. Uh, he writes uh, if if you if you want to go, uh, technical. He writes some pretty technical stuff about uh, uh, Psalos and Proclus and Neoplatonism and their ideas. Um, and he, but he's also on the library science side of things and works with students uh, in in classics and Byzantine studies. Um, so he's, he's just a very all around guy, fascinating and fun to talk to. Um, and I thought he'd be an ideal person to start off what I hope will be a series of conversations on Byzantine literature and its virtues. So here then is my discussion with Dave Jenkins. Dave Jenkins, welcome to the podcast. Well, thanks for having me. Uh, I, I can't really figure out why, but uh, I guess we'll find out. <laughs> uh, you, you sort of stumbled into it. I think you wrote me an email or something and that's enough. I Okay, all right, I that's all wrote, it takes, huh? Yeah, I wrote, I wrote people and I said, by the way, you wanna... <laughs> Anyway, I don't well, remember funny that because I think that my, you know, if nothing else, my kids, I think, are going to be greatly amused by this. You know, they're they're great listeners of podcasts. I think they get most of their information, in fact, from podcasts. And they got me they got me into it a bit. I started listening to Joe Rogan. But of course, uh, I caught so much grief for doing so that I had to kind of, you know, I had to give it up. But uh, I do occasionally listen to, you know, comedians 
who do podcasts. So I don't, I don't know how funny this is going to be, but uh, that's generally what I think of when I think of a podcast. <laughs> okay. It's up to you how funny we are and how wholesome you are. You know, okay. when you, all right. Yeah. Okay. All right. All right. Um, so, so you are the, an like area studies librarian um, yes. at Princeton University. You're responsible for classics, Hellenic studies, and linguistics. Linguistics. Exactly. That's right. But you're also a Byzantinist, and I know you as a Byzantinist, and you've done brilliant work on Michael Pselos, and I, I, I remember we had met back when you were at Notre Dame, and I, I thought you were just a Pselos person, but you, so you, you're wearing these two hats. So um, let's get from one to the other, and we'll, we'll start with um, the library side. But first, um, so you described yourself to me as an accidental Byzantinist, <laughs> and, and I thought this would be interesting to talk about. What brought you to Byzantium of all things? Or or to rephrase the question, what brought you to Byzantium? Yeah, well, I figured that everybody who's a Byzantinist is, is in some sense accidental. I mean, it's not like I met anybody in high school who said, uh, you know, I want to grow up to be a Byzantinist. I mean, uh, I grew up in Minnesota, and which might explain that. I mean, I had never even, you know, considered this this line of work as, as, as a really a possibility. But my entry really to the field is I think remarkably um, is remarkably accidental. Um, I, I, I was an undergraduate major in classics, uh, and then I went to Harvard Divinity School, uh, where I eventually earned a master's if, in th of theological studies. But in typical Div School fashion, I, I, I accomplished that without taking a single course in theology. So, so what? does a master of theological studies with no theological training, what is the next step for that person? So I thought, well, my best option is probably to, to find work in the Harvard library system, which I did. I bounced around for a few years, but I ended up at the Harvard Law School Library in its special collections as the stack supervisor. So this was a, a fantastic job for someone like me. I worked in a temperature controlled, high security vault surrounded by thousands of volumes, uh, you know, dedicated to basically early modern law. And most of these were from uh, the European continent. So it was the civil law tradition, as opposed, of course, to the common law tradition that the UK and the US are, are a part of. And civil law is based on Roman law, but also specifically on a particular codification of Roman law, which occurred in the sixth century under the aegis of the Byzantine emperor Justinian. And so it's in that context that I sort of first became aware of something specifically Byzantine, but that's really all, all I really knew. Um, now I had always been very precocious about languages. So I had kept up with, you know, Latin and Greek and European languages. And so, I, you know, I was generally in tune to the, to the basic idea. So I worked at that job for 10 years and towards the end, uh, I eventually got a master's of library science from Simmons College. I got married, started to have a family. Uh, so I started to look for professional work. Um, and I had a couple options within the Harvard system. But at that time, a strange posting came from Notre Dame. They were looking for a specifically Byzantine studies librarian. Now, they were looking for someone with five years of professional experience, uh, you know, a very specific skill set, which I didn't have. But I thought, well, I probably have enough Greek and I have enough of the languages to just throw an application at it. So I did. 
And of course, long story short, I'm hired and I find myself in South Bend, Indiana as the Byzantine Studies librarian. So it, 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 it does seem very accidental that someone becomes more or less a professional Byzantinist two months after realizing that a Byzantinist is something you could be, you know, so, um, so I feel very like uh, fortunate in that sense. So, so the question is, well, why did Notre Dame want a specifically Byzantine studies librarian? And the answer is that they had acquired a very unique personal library from a very famous American Byzantinist, Milton Anastas, who taught for many years at UCLA. Um, and what's interesting, Anthony, I mean, you, I, you obviously have a scholarly library. Do you have any idea how many volumes you have? I mean, no, no notion at all. You don't have, you don't have a personal card catalog or. No, I have a word document where I have entered the bibliographical information for all of my books Yeah. so that I can retrieve them and cut and paste them into footnotes or bibliographies when okay, I need sure. to, Sure. but I haven't counted them. Yeah, because the reason I ask is that I think a pretty healthy scholarly personal library is probably in the range of 5,000 volumes, somewhere in that in, in that neighborhood. Milton's personal library was somewhere in the neighborhood of 40,000 volumes. Wow. So this is a single individual yeah. who basically collected all of Byzantine scholarship. I mean, so that an institution who purchased that library became almost immediately a center for Byzantine studies, which in fact, I think was the aspiration of Notre Dame at the time. So for the first three or four years of that job, I, my job was basically just to integrate this collection, which was stored in a variety of areas across campus into the holdings of, of, of the library. And I sort of you know, uh, became familiar with the field just in this very intense bibliographic way of, of integrating that library. And then my you know, position took on other aspects as well, but, but it was primarily in that context. So I worked at Notre Dame for 10 years, um, really had no uh, you know, plans to sort of change jobs, but the posting came from Princeton, who was, we were looking for a librarian in classics, Hellenic studies and linguistics. And I had all sorts of people contact me saying that this job has got your name on it. You have to at least, you know, apply and talk to them. And, and so I did. And, and, uh, and so I've, I came to Princeton and I've been here now 11 years and I'm probably more of a Byzantist here than I was even at Notre Dame simply because, you know, a strange confluence of, 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 of things. We have five people on the teaching and research faculty who are in fact Byzantinists. So I'm still calling, I'm still counting John Halden who recently retired, but John is still around. I'm also counting Jack Tanous uh, as a Byzantinist, but there's, so there are five people. And then there's also the Center for Hellenic Studies here under the leadership of, of Dimitri Gondikas that provides lots of funding, energy activity related to Byzantine studies. So this is somewhere where Byzantine studies uh, does in fact happen. Uh, in fact, I sometimes describe myself as the, the Forrest Gump of Byzantine <laughs> studies as well. I mean, I just keep showing up at places where, you know, this Byzantine studies is happening. So there you have it. <laughs> yeah, you, you do have a lot of people at Princeton. It's probably the greatest concentration of Byzantinists in North America. It has to be, it, it just has to be. Yes. And so hearing your trajectory as, as an accidental Byzantinist, I realized that I'm kind of the opposite of that. Uh-huh. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, the way you, I, so I'm a very deliberate Byzantinist. And in fact, um, I've, I, I won't go on about it, but once I made the switch from physics to history and the humanities and so on, my undergrad uh, degree was in philosophy, actually. Uh, we'll talk about philosophy later. Yeah, sure, sure. But 
I made a strategic decision to, how shall I put this, pretend to be a Byzantinist uh-huh. uh, in order to stay in the academy, in order to do philosophy. Interesting. And, and Byzantium was going to be my cover. Right, right, right. Right. Because I realized, well, this is a fascinating area. It's pretty wide open, you know, given the amount of material that we have from it and the number of people who study it, there's a great imbalance. And so there's a lot of room for original new work. Absolutely. And, and it's the kind of work that I thought I could do, unlike philosophy, which I was like, wait, like you shouldn't be publishing philosophy in your twenties and thirties. So I'll just do Byzantium as a cover and but secretly work on philosophy sure sure yeah but then so I you're just, a tr- you're a true byzantinist you're a true byzantine philosopher <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah then i just dropped the philosophy sure yeah sure. then i actually became what i was pretending to be right. <laughs> well i yeah that's one way to put it become um, what you are as nietzsche says right yeah exactly if you keep yeah if you keep pretending it uh after a while um anyway uh, that's a whole other story about why i gave up on philosophy but um whatever so but at this by the way did you ever catch up on the theology that you didn't get at harvard well i mean i say that sort of you know facetiously i mean i loved if school and in fact it just had a very open-ended curriculum you you were able to pursue kind of your own interests i did a lot of classics while I was at uh, diff school i did i I focused on languages while i was there because i think the idea was to use that masters as sort of a preparation for a phd but uh i you know, for a variety of reasons, I just didn't have the, the energy, the concentration or the talent to go much further. So. Okay. So for people who don't know what a librarian at Princeton does, one who's in charge of these three areas, like Byzantine studies and classics and Hellenic studies and linguistics and so on. So what exactly do you do? What's your day job? Yeah. So, so I'm what's known as a subject librarian or a subject liaison, which means I'm responsible for discrete departments or disciplines within, within the university. So in the case of Princeton, I'm responsible again for classics, Hellenic studies, which would include Byzantine studies and modern Greek studies, and then also linguistics. And so uh, it's, it's a job that has a lot of varied responsibilities, which I think keeps it, you know, interesting And there's also a lot of space to kind of create your own style as a librarian, right? There's a lot of space to sort of uh, develop your own interests, develop your own strengths. And so uh, it's a good job. But essentially, there are four areas, I think, when we talk about the duties of a liaison. One would be what's called collection development, where I'm responsible for purchasing the research material in support of these disciplines. Um, and that could be just, you know, direct acquisition or just in consultation with other librarians about, about acquisition. So that's one. Number two, I'm the public face for these resources uh, so that I, you know, I do a lot of research consultations with researchers. I teach classes in large and small groups about how to use the library. Um, I do a lot of troubleshooting for researchers who are having trouble accessing material. So there's a public service aspect uh, to my job as well that again, a lot of variety in, in, in that. Then I think a third area would be what I would call library service. I mean, I'm a member of a, of a large bureaucracy. So there's a certain amount of committee work. There's a certain amount of collaborative projects that go on within a library. A lot of these now are related to digitization to the presentation of unique collections uh, you know, on the web. Um, and so I'm involved uh, in, in, in projects of that nature. 
And then the fourth area, which is I think where I function as a Byzantinist, is this is this open area where I think a librarian, a subject librarian is, ex is expected, I think, to develop and deepen their, their subject expertise. So, you know, some of us dabble a bit in research. You know, this is where I spend a lot of time, I think, reading Greek, reading Greek with graduate students um, and sort of pursuing my interests and my activities, uh, but in primarily as a Byzantinist. And, and so it's really kind of in those four areas. And, and again, it's, it's, there's a lot of variety to the job. It's an interesting job. Now, I imagine that a librarian at Princeton would have you know more resources than librarians in many other uh, university libraries. Absolutely, um, where you know a, a lot of your colleagues are probably having to make some difficult choices, but I'm sure that you do too. Um, so, what are some of the difficult choices that you're having to make, or just some of the problems that you're you're dealing with? This is in your capacity as a as a librarian. Um, so what are some of the open problems that you're that you're struggling with in, in those areas? Yeah, and, and here's where I probably have to be a little bit careful as a librarian at Princeton, um, because Princeton is arguably, you know, the richest, uh, you know, research institution for the humanities, I would argue, in the world. I mean, we're, our funding is really like no other in terms of, of the library and specifically, say, in the humanities. Uh, you know, the per capita spending, you know, the, the, the Princeton right. academic community is not very large, less than 6,000 undergraduates, about 2,000 grad. Um, and so we have problems and issues that our libraries simply do not. And like where to put all your stuff? Yeah. I mean, some, sometimes it's like, how do I spend all this money? How do I do it, you know, judiciously? How, 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 how can I be a good steward of these resources? Um, a lot of it, a lot of, you know, issues uh, in Myrie now come down to sort of print and electronic balance. You know, how much do we need right. that, that's available electronically? How much do we need to sort of maintain and print? And a lot of libraries, you know, have made that decision 20 years ago that, you know, we're going to go primarily electronic or, you know, and Princeton is still a place where we buy, you know, multiple formats of, of the same thing. Um, and so, you know, the, the challenges at Princeton are, are different than maybe anywhere. But don't you have storage problems? Um, you know, we do. Uh, in, in some sense, you know, Firestone is the main, you know, the main library at Princeton where a lot of the humanities collections are. And of course, that's a it's a very fixed amount of sh shelf footage. But we also have an enormous storage facility that's that's not too maybe a mile, mile and a half from campus called Recap. It's a facility that we mm -hmm. share with New York Public, Columbia, and now Harvard. And so, um, you know, and so, yeah, we have we have storage issues, but the storage is close at hand. And, and it's basically, I mean, in theory, unlimited. But of course, you know, sure. we, yeah. Yeah, we have one of those. And sure. it was the uh, last previous decade, our library was closed for renovations. And you would order things from there. But something you could go there. And I went. And it's, it was vast. Absolutely. It's, cavernous in fact they had little trucks driving down the aisles absolutely it was like that scene at the end of raiders of the lost ark yeah it's, it's almost a little disconcerting when you ours is similar when you go out and you see this sort of robotic facility yeah. where all this material is stored and you know part of that is seems like cool but part of it is a little disconcerting. I don't know. Yeah, and I was looking for Cicero's letters, which was right. just incongruous. In <laughs> right, exactly, exactly. Yeah, anyway, so you mentioned digital projects and digital resources. 
And I know that you've done a lot with that. For example, you should let our audience know that you made a uh, kind of like a search engine database where people can go online and search for all translations of Byzantine texts that have been done in any modern language. And it's a very useful resource. I know, you know my students use it all the time. I use it sometimes, just double check. Um, so, th so that's a, 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 a service to the field that you did there in terms of a digital tool. Um, what other sorts of digital resources are you experimenting with or what do you, where do you think that we can do more uh, with? Yeah, it's funny, you know, um, as a librarian, of course, you know, part of my responsibility is sort of staying abreast of uh, online tools and databases and helping in their development. But I'm someone where who has a, a real kind of love-hate relationship with technology. And, and so th there's always this sort of opportunity cost thing that, that's going on in my head. If I really get involved you know, in a digital initiative, like it means I'm not doing something else. And so I'm always, I'm, I'm always kind of working that balance. So, so for instance, these, the database that you mentioned, the translation database, there's a certain amount of, you know, overhead of, of, of maintaining a, a, a database like that. And I'm, I'm, I am really am a one person shop at, at this point. Um, but it would seem like an obvious way to sort of help the field is, you know, you well know is that when you teach Byzantine studies, it's primarily in translation. Yeah. The sources are most of them in Greek. We can't expect people to kind of access them. So I think that was a kind of a no brainer, uh, you know, about that database. And, and I basically maintain it just by being, you know, bibliographically active in the field, but also in every issue of the Byzantine issues, I trift, I'll go through right. and, and try to get all the translations that are mentioned there. So I'm, I'm tracking journals, translations in journals, edited books, books. Um, but the real problem in terms of the opportunity cost came when I decided to take on a second database. And this one was related to manuscripts. And it began really for my own personal use and interest. When I was at Notre Dame, they had a full microfilm copy of the Ambrosiana Manuscript Library in Milan. And there were about 1,100 Greek manuscripts on microfilm. And I just loved going randomly picking you know, reels, setting them up and just looking at manuscripts. And it was something I, I thought I was going to really miss when I came to uh, Princeton. Well, so that was 1100 on microfilm. You know, the present state of digitization, there are now over 13,000 fully digitized, freely accessible Greek manuscripts. Um, and so it was my intention to create a database that would track just those kinds, just fully digitized and freely accessible. Um, and this has been a real can of worms because uh, it's difficult to kind of stay on top of as manuscripts are added. And, and I should add, the, the, there's a database of record for Greek manuscripts called Panakes, which is maintained in France. Um, and and they, they basically are collecting data of, of, on all manuscripts, whether digitized or not. And uh, originally, when I began my database, they weren't tracking digitiz the digitization links um, as well as I would have liked. And, but they've really caught up. And so my database now is really a kind of complementary one. I mean, the, real, the way I use it is with, when I'm reading an article and I come across a reference to a manuscript um, and I know immediately that this is among the manuscripts that have been digitized, my interface allows you to do just a quick search just on the discrete number and you're immediately on the link. So within a few seconds, I'm able to look at the manuscript um, you know, which is, you know, it's, it, it's not some radical game changer, but I think it's a, it, you know, it's a new phase 
uh, in kind of the philology of the field. So I'm, I'm happy to maintain that database. Now I should say in both, and I'm hoping one thing that your some of your listeners will do is that, you know, while I try to stay up on both of them, I'm always open to, you know, adding the glaring omissions. So it, 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 especially in the translation database, if there are translations that, that you know that aren't in there, please email me and I'll just, I add them immediately. And this happens fairly consistently. Oh, you, you do get emails from people saying? Absolutely, absolutely. Saying you don't have this, you don't have that. I've gotten some very like, testy emails from Russia about, uh, you know, my lack of, uh, uh, of Russian translation. So if anybody has a handy list of, of Russian translations, please do send it along. Yes, I'll they will let you know when you absolutely, use a Russian absolutely. item. They, that was, it was not a friendly email. <laughs> um, yeah, so having these digitized manuscripts is incredible uh, for me. Um, I'm not a paleographer. I don't do editions of text. Right. Nevertheless, there are so many occasions when I have either needed to or just wanted to go That's and right. look at the manuscript. That's right. Um, for all kinds of things. So, for example, oh, I remember I came across a reference uh, in, um, to a scolion by Arethas. Right. Right. Bishop of Caesarea, early 10th century, commissioned these manuscripts. Absolutely. And he had a scolion in Clement of Alexandria, which purportedly um, had the first reference to the word lesbian being used in the modern sense. Wow. Okay. That's him. Yeah. And I thought, I got to, being a lesbian myself, right. I got to find this, <laughs> right? Uh, and I did. Uh, it yeah. wasn't that easy because there was no folio reference. Uh, right. So, yeah, I just had to go in. I had to go to Clement's text, find where he talks about this. That's right. And then kind of backtrack. So that that was very, uh, that was interesting. But and I, and I, I took a photo of it. So now yeah. I use it in talks. Well, absolutely. And you bring up a good point, too. When I say that you're two seconds away from looking at a manuscript, once you get there, that's when the fun begins, because right. Right, you got to find now your passage within that manuscript. And that's. Uh, yeah. You know. um, another case I remember was I was looking for a cover image uh, for my history of Byzantium in the 10th and 11th centuries. And I thought I would look through Basil II's Munologion. Sure. And that uh, I think that's Vatican. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. That's and they digitized the whole thing. It's like almost 500 quote pages. Right. Of purely sadistic images. <laughs> Right. It's the harsh. By the end of it, I was just right. depressed. Right. It's, it's almost yeah, the, like spur, a, the spurting blood in some yes. of these is amazing. Yes. So many torture implements and all of this. Right. That I was like, oh, Basel, what are you looking at? <laughs> uh, anyway, so with all of these digitized manuscripts, um, you mentioned to me that you're doing some like some data work like you like you can start. You can use this almost as a, an archive of big data to start generating conclusions about what the Byzantines are reading and writing when, or just, or at least to form some, to get a shape of that, uh, just a preliminary shape. Yeah. And this is, I think, the direction that I want to continue to go with this data. And by the way, you know, I offer the data right at the site for, as a free download. Anybody can download all the data that I have at, 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 at my database and, and start to play with it. Because it's a question of, at this point, of metadata, right, of how do we describe the manuscripts in a way that we can make these sort of aggregate generalizations about the distribution that we see in manuscripts. And it's a tricky business, and I think you have to be careful, you know, uh, about that. But one of the but one of the reasons that I like 
sort of maintaining my quote, quote unquote, own database is I'm the person who's assigning the, the metadata uh, to, to these manuscripts. And I assign some very generic sort of subject themes to them. Most manuscripts are thematic or the collected works of a single author. Not Certainly not all. There's lots of manuscripts that have a variety of texts. There's Florilegia, obviously. Mm -hmm. But most manuscripts are basically thematic or of a single author. And so among those, we can, you know, we can, we can make some solid metadata decisions, you know, threshold decisions. This is type A, not type B. And once you've done that, you can start to, you know, look at these distributions and then graph them and hopefully create these kind of snapshots that an undergrad or a graduate student could kind of just have in their head about the distribution. Like, for instance, you know, you can see for, that in the 11th century, there's this explosion of Nazianzus manuscripts. Um, still nowhere near as many as Chrysostom, but there's this significant increase. You can see that, you know, Euripides tends to be, you know, occurs more often than other Trojanians. You see things like that. You see the, the relationship of, say, Aristotle to Plato. So you see you can see these larger trends that just might help people like situate um, their mind when they think about, you know, Byzantine texts or Byzantine literature. And I, I, I don't like to get carried away with, you know, with the significance of all that, but I think it's something that, you know, I can contribute and might be useful. And so I think that's going to come to the site eventually is I'm going to have a series of graphs that I think that I feel confident that, 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 that is showing something significant. Yeah, so I've heard, um, I've heard it described that like in the ninth century, the manuscripts tend to be more of I don't know philosophical. In the tenth century, they're more historical and this kind of thing. Like, you well, like, for, like that. on that point specifically, is that you know we'll talk more about this. This you know the eleventh and the twelfth century are generally considered as this sort of flourishing of Byzantine letters and the philosophical activity. Michael Psalos in the eleventh, and we have this other activity in the twelfth. And the assumption would be that that we're going to see like an uptick in philosophical manuscripts in those centuries. And we don't see it that we actually see a higher percentage of philosophical manuscripts in the, in the 10th century. Uh, and then again, you know, in the 13th and going and going forward there, you see a very gradual uh, increase. So, it, and again, it's hard to say, what does that mean? There's probably a million reasons for this that we have to kind of think about, but maybe that's the point. It's something worth thinking about. Right. Cause these manuscripts had a very long shelf life. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. And uh, and the other thing about it is, you know, I have a brother who's a scientist, and I and 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 this concept of the n, the number of iterations in in an experiment, and he's always yeah. amazed that you have thirteen. Your n is thirteen thousand. I mean, that's incredible. You know, so I think that you know the, the point being is that we have a lot of data now. We do, and I think that we can probably start to make some of these generalizations. And again, and a lot of these are generally known. I mean, I think we've always known that there's you know increased interest in Nazianzus in the 11th century. And, you know, a lot of these things tend to be unknown as well, but there might be some, uh, you know, some hidden gems in there as well. Sure, sure. And none of this would have been possible without these digital tools. Exactly, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And exactly. The, the number 13,000, those are the manuscripts that have been digitized and placed online. Am, am I correct? I have this um, number in my head that the total number of Byzantine manuscripts that we have is something around 60,000. I think that's right. I've always, I've always thought like between 40 to 60, but I think that's right. It's in, I think 60 is closer to it. Yeah. So 
Yeah. That's is the kind of range that uh, that we're that, that we're at. But I would I would probably argue, however, though, that the 13,000 we have, again, the N is very high, is a fairly fair representation of these distributions. Okay. Um, and and I think that you know we have major collections that are very diverse that are part of that digitized group. That's weird because 60,000 is exactly the number like the number of lead seals that we have from Byzantium. Interesting. That's Interesting. An odd coincidence. It's, yeah, yeah. 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 Right. All right. Let's not go down. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, so another digital tool that you're you are a heavy user of, you told me, is the TLG. Yeah, yeah, the TLG. And yeah, I mean, you know, the thing about the TLG, and I I I, I will say this. When I when I started as a Byzantinist, and I might have a couple of stories maybe about about the early days of myself as a Byzantinist, is that one of the things that was apparent to me and is that there was this enormous opportunity like presented to me, uh, you know, remarkably for someone with my interests, I've always been very precocious about language to all of a sudden be dropped in the lap of Byzantium because here's a discipline whose literary evidence is vast. It's largely unknown, untranslated, uh, uncommented on. And so a librarian is always looking for an angle about how to gain proximity with researchers and how, in other words, how to best understand how to serve researchers. And I just thought this is the perfect avenue for me. If I concentrate on Greek and on reading Greek and on reading Byzantine texts and familiarizing myself with the tools and the resources that address the language of Byzantium. And, then, and again, and by, and by that, I mean specifically Greek in my case, that this would really be a rewarding and hopefully you know, valuable contribution as a librarian. And so given that focus, the TLG is, you know, I basically you know, live in the TLG. Um, so let me just say for our yeah. audience that the TLG yeah, is the Thesaurus Linguae Graecae, and it's an online searchable database of basically all ancient, most Byzantine and oh, quite yeah. a few post-Byzantine texts, Greek exactly. texts. So you can exactly. go and... So, so wait, what do you do? Do you mean you, like you read texts on there? Or oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Oh. Absolutely. Yeah. So what the TLG, and you've accurately described it, and since the late 80s, you know, it's been adding lots and lots of Byzantine texts. And I'd say that, you know, all of, you know, the, the major authors deep mm -hmm. into their holdings are now in, in the TLG. So a lot of these additions four Byzantine authors are very hard to track down. Yeah. And so the TLG, they're all in one place. Now, of course, the TLG has digitized a single edition of those texts, but oftentimes it's the current critical edition often, but in many cases it's, it's an, it, they're older editions, but you at least have immediate access to the Greek of Byzantine texts all in one place. And of course they're all hyperlinks so that you can move between texts, um, you know, very, very quickly as well. And so there, there's there's that sort of, you know, great value of the TLG. You just have all the text at your fingertips. That's the first thing. And all the words, of course, that you're looking at are hyperlinked to Greek dictionaries. And the TLG has added, there's probably seven Greek dictionaries that are linked to any word that you see in a text. So in other words, one of the real challenges of Byzantine Greek is that the vocabulary is enormous. And so... When you're reading a Byzantine Greek text, I don't care who you are, I've been doing it for 20 years and I'm constantly looking up words. And so to be able to just click on a word and quickly gain access to its definition is critical to really sustaining enough pace to keep a, a comprehensive 
uh, kind of co uh, contact with the text. So that's critical. Uh, but then you have all the search capability in the TLG where you can search for a particular exact form of a word, or more importantly, now you can search for the lemma of a word. In other words, the morphology of Greek is very, very complicated. Anyone who has taken any Greek knows this. The, the famous, you know, verb, you know, verb stem iami. I think there's like 450 possible forms of that, of that one verb stem. Uh, it's more like 139. It's 139. <laughs> I don't know where I got 400. Okay, that's see, that's going to qualify everything I say from here on out, Anthony. Thanks. No, no, no. I'm joking. It's like only 139. Yeah, there's only 139. Okay, so there's only 139. Still, it's a pretty big number. The N is very high on that. Yeah. Um, so, 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 so the point is, is you're able to run a search, and all you have to do is enter, you know, the dictionary headword, one form of EAME, that's the exact word, and the TLG is going to find all of the right. declined forms of that word in a search. And of course, I'm often doing what's known as a proximity search. I'm looking for two words that are, mm -hmm. are relatively close to one another. And so you're finding connections uh, um, doing that. The TLG has recently added even more functionality, which I think is of, of great significance for readers of Byzantine text. Primarily what's called the n-gram, which is a kind of an algorithm that's looking for similar passages in text. So what I'll do is I'll call up a Byzantine text, I'll click on n-gram, and what that algorithm does then, it highlights word strings, three or four you know, word strings. And given the, the shading of that highlighting, it tips me off to, to the fact that there are a few or a lot of similar strings found in the entire corpus of the TLG. So and in terms of you know, Byzantine authors who are alluding to other texts a great deal, there's a lot of intertextuality going on. The engram is is uh, you know a, a fantastic tool, and in fact, when I read with you know in a group of graduate students, we generally have somebody who, who's running the engram as we read, and is able then to sort of interject that okay, well this is Nazianzus, this is Chrysostom, etc. And the engram kind of puts that at your fingertips. Yeah, it's done some damage though in editions well, of texts. Yeah, well, yeah, exactly. Well, we can talk about that exactly. Go ahead. <laughs> no, I'm saying, you know, you, you keep running this and, and you end up with like an apparatus at the bottom of the page that's just flagging dozens of texts as relevant intertexts, and they're not. I mean, I think there's always been this notion of what, in quotes, TLG scholarship, that the TLG creates this kind of faux scholarship, this sort of shallow scholarship, that you get a few instances of a few words that appear together, and then you make sort of generalizations from that, or you create inflated apparat apparatuses. And then, and then, and, and, and this is, you know, it, again, it's the tool argument, right? That you, every, right. And everyone can misuse a tool, et cetera. And, and, you know, and, and we can talk about that, but I think, you know, again, I, I'm talking about the TLG as a kind of, is a remarkable tool for accessing very difficult texts that really have no other support. There are no commentaries. There are no translations in many instances. And so, you know, this is kind of what we have. And I was gonna add that the last thing, the last feature that has been recently added is that you can now search for words in combination with grammatical categories. And this is really, you know, bringing it into an even deeper philological uh, sort of depth uh, for instance, you know, you can search for a specific word, say, within a five word proximity of a verb in the optative, right. you know, which might be, you know, is of interest to philologists. And yeah, so, yeah. yeah I, I, let me tell you, uh, so I ran an interesting search yesterday. Okay, yeah, yeah. So I was wondering, just out of the blue, um, 
And my search is in the TL, so I don't read text on the TLG. Um, but I, I go in there to, to solve questions that I have. Sure. Especially about the history of words. Okay. And because you can arrange the search results chronologically. Absolutely. Exactly. Right. Now, you know, the dates that they assigned to certain texts yeah, yeah, are more, or, less. more or less, but you get a picture. Exactly. And I wanted to trace the history of the suffix apulos for a name. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Because okay. <laughs> you know how every other Greek is named Sadapodopoulos? Right, 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 right. So, first of all, what is that? Right. And when did it start? And, well, we know what it is. It comes from Latin pulus, which is like a baby bird or a, a chick. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. And it refer so it refers to um, the offspring or child of X, right? Sure. So Papadopoulos is the, it's a priestling. Right. Exactly. Right? It's like duckling. Right. Okay. Or dean, deanling. <laughs> All right. So this is a question about how on earth did a Latin noun right. become a suffix for Greek name formation? And I was curious about this because those kinds of names first appear in like, oh, let's say around the year 1000. Okay. Okay. So I managed to trace that, but nothing before that. And I figured, yeah, you know, this can't be a contemporary influence. This has to be something that had entered Greek a long time ago, a, a long time before that. And right. it's only at that point that it kind of worked its way. So it must have been used for animals first because that's what it was used for in Latin. Okay. So like the, like a, a calf or the, like the offspring of an animal would be called the animal name Pulus. Exactly. Right. But, but the TLG wouldn't help me with that because it's just not attested because nobody wrote those kinds of things, even if they were saying them. So where did I go? Where? I went to the papyrus database. Okay, another great one. Yeah, yeah. Uh, like you can access it through papyri.info. Exactly, exactly. Right? And I searched for Opolis, but using two lambdas because that's how it would have been spelled the, when it was first transposed from Latin into Greek. Well done. And lo and behold, I found a papyrus, 5th century, that refers to peristeropulo, which is like, and it's in a list of food items. And this is a bird. It's a pigeon. And so it's a baby pigeon. And there it is in Greek. Well, that must have been fun. Oh, yes. Because now, like, I know that that term was being used throughout, like, from the 5th to the 11th century, it's just not used in literary texts, which exactly. makes sense until it appears in names. Very interesting. Well, you're a craftsman. I mean, you're using the tools well. Yes, but they're eating pigeons, Dave. <laughs> <laughs> I'll leave that to the historians. I'm just interested in the words, Anthony. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I have found papyri where they're eating camels. Wow. Yes. Uh, but anyway, uh, those are the that's the Persian occupation. <laughs> of, of Egypt in the seventh century, they I found these lists of all the food items that they're bringing to the table of the Persian governor, and like every Tuesday he had a camel. I think. Wow. <laughs> wow. Anyway. I used to go to Taco Bell every Tuesday. I, I don't know if that's similar, but <laughs> uh, I'll take the camel. <laughs> 
But you bring up a good point about the TLG that it does only include lit- literary texts, right? That the yeah. papyri, that the Greek on, in papyri is in fact in, in another very developed database, which you've described, papyri.info, uh, right? Yeah, so I wanted to pick up on something else you said, which is sure. that you, you read a lot of Byzantine texts and you're one of the few people I've heard um, admit that he enjoys reading them. <laughs> Normally, we're not supposed to do this. Well, right. Um, so I have said that, have I? Okay. Um, well, and it's also obvious you can't hide it. Yeah, you know, I, I do. But, you know, and I kind of blame you for this a little bit because I, it was either in a conversation or at a talk that I attended that you gave. And I think you've written it as well, where you've posed this question, I think, to the field. Is there anybody out there who actually enjoys reading Byzantine texts? And I think that that's really stuck with me. I mean, I think it was at that point that I really began thinking of it in those terms, because one, it was kind of undeniable. There was something that that I did enjoy about about reading Byzantine Greek, but I hadn't really specifically thought about it, because like you said, there's almost something... Um, I don't know, maybe transgressive or inappropriate about bringing in kind of your own enjoyment into your interaction, you know, like with these texts. Um, but as a librarian, you know, again, I'm, I'm sort of like I'm near the field. I'm sort of a para-Byzantinist. But it's interesting because, you know, in the word para, like paralegal, is that I'm alongside a Byzantinist. But in the Greek sense of the preposition para, there's also the sort of this transgressive idea, right, that right. you're kind of... There's this is is this kind of a misuse of the academic sense of these texts to sort of bring in too much of your own enjoyment. I don't know, but 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 I think it's true. Is that I do enjoy it, and I think uh, for 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 reasons that are probably fairly obvious. Um, you know, when we talk about Byzantine texts or literature, we talk about the Greek language in a sort of continuum of registers, so that there is a kind of high register Greek that is very crafted by professional uh, orators uh, and then, you know, all the way down to the spoken language and that there's sort of higher middle, middle registers, lower registers, and that, that there was, you know, Byzantine literati could operate in all of these registers, yeah. et cetera. And so when you talk about the text that I enjoy, and it gives you a sense for my own mind, I think, is that I like reading Byzantine prose in the high register um, because it's such a game. Um, that the, these are so highly crafted, it's as if you're in the presence of hyper literacy, a kind yeah. of literacy that we no longer can recognize or are in touch with. And so you become a kind of uh, archaeologist, essentially, of literacy, of trying to figure out how is this operating? When, when, you, when, you, when you get a sense for how rigorously someone was trained to pull off Greek in the high register, yeah. which is no longer a spoken language. Um, you know, to the people doing it, that all the hours of memorization and declamation and performance and drill over and over again, that there's a kind of a remarkable uh, series of layers that I think are, in fact, uh, enjoyable. So so on one level, you have the syntactical complexity. And and I think this is where I I have a certain highly formalized mind. I'm looking for patterns and for... And then in, in, in Greek in the high high register, it's remarkable the things that they that they're able to do with syntax. These sort of you know these inversions of of the way sentences are constructed, and as you as you gain 
a little bit of familiarity, you start to see those things and there's a certain pleasure in just identifying them. And then at the semantic level, I mean, a lot of these texts are so opaque on the first read that, you know, the first cut is like, you know, is he talking about a horse or a block of cheese? <laughs> you know, what, what what is the actual object here? What's going on? Yeah. And so you sort of, there's a pleasure in cracking that nut. And then you sort of, you you move down the layer and it's the kind of Greek that sort of keeps on giving. In other words, Byzantine literature is not, these aren't an inventory of supplies from a, a wine cellar. That these are full-blown literary compositions that are, uh, that, that I think have a lot to give for someone with a certain kind of uh, mentality. And then there's a question of genre. You know, the, the, there's, you know the, there's a criticism of Byzantine literature that there was, it, it, it fell into a str- restricted number of genres. But some of those genres I, 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 I like a great deal. One is epistolography. Uh, we have large letter collections uh, of Byzantine authors. Michael Psalosis would be included here. And a lot of these letters are, you know, perfunctory of, you know, court intellectuals who are writing to, to people above them, advancing careers of people below them. But then there's a category of letter where you have two very literate people expressing, I think, a true like literary friendship with one another. And I think those letters are can be very moving and interesting. And 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 there's a whole series of these. And and I particularly like you know, reading those. Then there's the genre of funeral orations, uh, another kind of favorite of mine. You know, for someone who, you know, I, you know, New York Times, I read the obituaries. It's one of the first things I go to when, uh, you know, when I'm reading, you know, the Times. And I think funeral orations are also very, very interesting and, and reveal the sensibility of these authors uh, well. So, so that's, I guess, you know, in a nutshell, kind of the contour of kind of what, what, what I what I like about it. Um, sure. Um, so speaking of the, a lot of these authors are real craftsmen. Absolutely. Right. So this is a very, very difficult uh, uh, enterprise of composing these works. They're very Absolutely. deliberate. They're very structured. Um, I agree with you about the syntax. It, it's kind of all about structure. Have you recently read Gregory of Nazianzus's funeral oration for Basil of Caesarea? I mean, not recently, but it's a fundamental text. It's Absolutely. it's a classic, right? Yeah. And I thought one day of, I, I assigned it to some of our classics uh, grad students okay, just, okay. just to see how they would. Yeah. It was too hard. Interesting. Uh, for them. But it's one of those texts where you just look at a sentence and it's like, no, no, nope. no. And then it falls into place. Ah, got it. Yep. Absolutely. But, yeah, but it takes a while. It's like, oh, I see yeah. what you did there. Exactly. It's really, really something. Yeah. Um, and yeah, no, I I know exactly what you mean. I there's the thrill of sort of cracking the sentence. Right. And then the meaning. Absolutely. Which is a whole other thing, right? A whole other thing. And it's almost like Imagine just to convey this to the audience, because you don't get these um, this exhilaration from a translation. You can't. Absolutely. It's um, it's like some obscure genre of 18th century music, <laughs> right? That is heavily crafted and follows all these rules. Right. Um, but there's like an infinite number of variations that you can perform within those rules. Exactly. And yeah, I mean, if you're like an aficionado of that particular subgenre, then it really works for you. 
Uh, oh, no, no, it absolutely does. And uh, and I should add as well that this idea of, you know, I, I do my own personal reading, but, you know, one of the roles that I've been able to inhabit a little bit is reading Greek with other people. You know, I've been, you know, involved in Greek reading groups, you know, since really the early days at uh, at Notre Dame. And this is also, I think, part of the pleasure of reading these texts is I like knowing people in the context of a reading group, because, you know, especially a text where there is no translation or commentary, it's just you, a group of people in front of a text and in the right combination of people, the right kind of, you know, graciousness and curiosity and, and, and almost kind of humility. It, 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 it's a special experience. You know, I know I've shared this anecdote with you and it's, I, I share it with everybody at Dumbarton Oaks, it maintains a page of these oral histories of, you know, the giants in the field. And my, one of my favorites is by Michael McCormick, the Harvard historian, where he describes being a member of a reading group at Dumbarton Oaks, led by none other than Alexander Kajdan. Of course, you know, one of the giants of Byzantine literature wrote many of the entries in the Oxford Dictionary of Byzantium. Um, and and uh, Alexander Kajdan led this reading group, and they were reading Salas, because I think, you know, in Kajdan's mind, this was a very entertaining, interesting uh, author. And in, in Michael's telling, it's like, you know, how loud the group would get and how funny it was and what a kind of a great time it was. But my favorite part is where he describes Robert Browning, who was also a member of this of, of yeah. this reading group, who is a sort of a great authority on the history of the Greek language. The way Robert was able to read a sentence with this sort of intonation and cadence that would sort of reveal the syntax. And anyone who's read Greek kind of knows what this means. And Michael describing it as absolutely, absolutely remarkable. And I think I just love that because that's in some sense what I'm after. That remarkable. I see. Yeah. yeah. That, it's also very rare. And it's not something our field has invested in cultivating very much. Um, so, so I should say just by way of background that for a long time, it was uh, not just customary, but even mandatory to dump on Byzantine literature as something sterile and unoriginal and right. affected and oh now we have to read this um and this is how scholars actually wrote about scholars who were experts in it and very good at reading it would describe it that way exactly and i i still don't know whether this was a genuine dislike like they were just educated in the modern classics and found this type of literature just to be offensive to their sensibilities or maybe they this was a a a kind of affect like you just had right. to distance yourself from any kind of enjoyment of this to establish some kind of you know cred right i i i still can't understand it and i think we've successfully vanquished that attitude so nowadays no one would come out and say anything like that that i think that's right you know, yeah. um though <laughs> Uh, parenthesis, <laughs> parenthesis, some Byzantine authors are better than others. Absolutely. Right. And there's some, I just don't enjoy reading and there's some who weren't that good at the game. Exactly. Right. Uh, by the way, who are some of your favorites to read? Well, I mean, Salas is, you know, is, 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 is clearly number one. <clears throat> uh, you know, from there, I, you know, I like the Haniatis brothers, um, uh, Michael right. Haniatis, Nikitas. Sure. I mean, I think that, you know, you're going to get a lot of, you know, bang for your buck there. I like uh, Michael Italicus. Um, I like, he, you know, his letter collection. I, I enjoy those. 
Um, and again, I read, I read philosophy. So sometimes even the high register, like, you know, John Italus is someone that, you know, I've read a fair amount in, um, Gregory of Antioch, uh, who, you know, is the, the era of Estathius of, uh, Thessaloniki in the 12th century that, you know, those two authors to me are the pinnacle of the high register. Those are the ones that okay. are going to bust your chops, uh, every time you try to look at those texts. But again, they're, they're also very, very interesting in, I think, uh, you know, rewarding in their way. Um, but, you know, but again, not to beat a dead horse, I, I like to come back to Sallust because one of the great things about his Greek in many ways is that it is more accessible than many authors of the high register, yes. at least at least to me. I'm able to understand him uh, much better, uh, really, even on the first read, especially in a, in, in a lot of the texts that, that I particularly like, like his letters and his theological lectures, um, you know, and he, and he talks about that as well, although, you know, somewhat disingenuously, you know, he writes a, you know, a letter in the fairly high register asking his correspondent to write in the lower register, implying that you really can't pull off the high register. So, yes. so stop trying. Yes. <laughs> so, uh, but yeah, but I, 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 I basically read authors of the 11th and the 12th century. I'm, uh, I'm, I'm you know, a middle Byzantinist in that way. And so you've written a number of articles and studies on Telos as a philosopher. Now, we're almost out of time, and I don't know that we can open oh, okay. the question of Byzantine philosophy right now, but sure, I am actually thinking of doing some podcast episodes on that topic later on. I'm just thinking about how to organize them. But, yeah. you know, you would be one of the people very relevant for this because you've written about his philosophy. Um, so I was just wondering if... By way of conclusion, you can talk a little bit about that. What's Chelos in your view of philosopher, or and what does that mean to you? And or if you have any thoughts about Byzantine philosophy, where do we go from here? Yeah, that's a pretty open-ended question. It is pretty open. Yeah, I'm really, sorry any, to... any any kind of numbers of ways because yeah, because you know this idea of you know Byzantine philosophy. I mean, if you're interested in philosophy, why would you be interested in Byzantine philosophy? Because there's basically a question. Did it even exist in this overwhelmingly theological context? Yeah. Um, and, you know, and my answer to that is always that, you know, the Byzantines, I think, had two fundamental definitions of philosophy. One was that it related to a, uh, a, a monastic, you know, an, a, an ascetic who um, had really achieved a certain level of theosis, right? That this was a, really a Christian definition of true philosophy. They often call it that, true philosophy. But they also had a very specific understanding of philosophy as specifically the study of Plato and Aristotle. And there's, there can be no doubt about that. So the question is, were there people in Byzantium studying Plato and Aristotle? And the answer is absolutely yes. Now, there were never very many. I think we have to sort of admit that. It was the highest level of the sort of the Byzantine curriculum. It was, you know, right. it was philosophy with, with especially reaching Plato. Um, and so there's never very many of those people, but the, have there ever been very many people engaged with Plato and Aristotle? I mean, I think it's still an open question whether our era is any more or less philosophical than the Byzantine era. So I don't, uh, but I also have a very broad definition of what I think philosophy is. I think if you reach a certain level of abstraction, you're left with a few, you know, ideas. There's a few moves. There's a few things. Um, and whatever your ideas are at that level, I'm, I'm kind of okay with that. I tend to be like, you know, Whitehead's little dictum about the history of European philosophy being a series of footnotes to Plato. I mean, I tend to be that kind of mentality that Plato represents for the first time, you know, a density, you know, a depth and a breadth of philosophical issues that 
our conversation, you know, uh, you can be a current philosopher and be in conversation really with Plato. And I think the Byzantines were, I think Sulas was, um, and uh, I think I've gotten a lot out of reading Sulas, you know, in a philosophical way. And right, I think if we're at the end of, of our time, you know, it's too bad we could go into, um, I think a lot of the uh, of the spe specifics, I think in the case of Sulas, he introduces very explicitly uh, the great systematizer of, of Platonism, the Neoplatonist Proclus, who also is really the source for Pseudo-Dionysus. Um, and, you know, Pseudo-Dionysus then sort of feeds the other two main Orthodox intellectuals, theological intellectuals, which would be Maximus the Confessor and Gregory Nazianzus. You know, and Sellas operates, I think he feels that he's fully within you know, the bounds of orthodoxy by basically saying, look, I, I'm not saying anything that these, that these three fathers did not say. And I'm also operating strictly within the bounds of nature, that I'm only sort of using Greek right, philosophy right. to talk about nature. But here's the last thing I would say about that. And what interests me is that the problem comes is when your conceptualization of nature starts to become very, very similar to the conceptualization of the two fundamental Christian doctrines, which would be the incarnation, the person of Jesus, and then the doctrine of the Trinity, that the structure, the conceptual structure within Neoplatonism lends itself to this, these kind of analogous similarities. And I think that's where Byzantine thinkers would get into trouble, is that in speculating or thinking about either the person of Jesus, the issue of Christology, or in terms of the Trinity, they would begin to use metaphors and ideas that were found within Neoplatonism in ways that then began to, um, you know, make, uh, I think, the authorities of orthodoxy uncomfortable. And I think Sulla certainly experienced that. Um, we have evidence, you know, I think there were, there were monastics that were, I think, constantly snapping at his heels. You know, I, it, it appears that he was forced to make public yeah. confession of faith twice. So I think that these things did occur. Yeah. I, I, you know, hearing you now, I'm thinking we really need to have a separate focused discussion about this and open the question of Byzantine philosophy and what we mean by that. Because I think there are a number of people who are invested in the question or just curious about it. And yeah. it does, I think, call for and require some conceptual clarity, which is absolutely, absolutely. Your, your domain here. Absolutely. Um, so I'll link... Uh, to one of your studies of Sethos, you know, probably the one that you did for the Cambridge uh, history um, and uh, the Cambridge intellectual history. And uh, let's defer that for another time. You know, sure. I, I'm trying to get Michaela into the discussion. We can oh, yeah, 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 yeah. No, no, there's 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 better authorities than me on Byzantine philosophy. Michaela would be certainly one of them. <laughs> so um, you, you mentioned obituaries earlier. And I, I just <laughs> I read a joke this morning. So I just got to tell you. OK, good. <laughs> so there's a guy this is in the soviet union right every day he goes to the kiosk and he he buys a copy of pravda he gets the copy looks at the front page just throws it in the trash right next day same thing looks at the front page throws it in the trash he keeps doing this and some guy the guy at the kiosk says hey man look why are you just looking at the front page and throwing this what are you doing here right i'm just looking for an obituary the guy says the obituaries are not on the front page. <laughs> uh, this one will be. <laughs> good, 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 good. <laughs> anyway, I got a little book of Soviet jokes. I read a few every day. Good, good. All right, Dave, thank you very much. Well, sure, Anthony. It's been, it's been fun. You know, thanks this for was, having me yeah. on.
It was a pleasure. I wanted people to get some insight into what you do because it's so important for the work of everyone else. Uh, certainly right. for all the lucky people at Princeton uh, right. who get to have reading circles with you, <laughs> uh, but also for, for us and I've, I've benefited a lot from you. So thank you again. Super, thank you.